Hi there, I'm David Harvey. I'm here with John Andrews, and this is the Two Texts Podcast. In this podcast, we're two friends in two different countries, here every two weeks talking about two different texts from the Bible. This, however, is our launch series, and so we're bringing you a daily episode of the two of us talking about the parables of Jesus. This is episode nine, and it's called Small is the New Big. Okay, John, in our last episode, well, actually in the last two episodes, we talked about these Luke 15 parables of lost things, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and then two lost sons, uh, which was which was really fun to talk about. But now what's interesting, however, is we see in Jesus' teaching ministry that that it appears that he utilized these stories elsewhere. Sometimes this idea that, oh, well, he only ever told this story once. And, and I think on an itinerant preaching ministry, as Jesus the rabbi was, it's likely these stories appeared in different contexts. And, and we do get a little window into that with the story of the lost sheep. If we turn our Bibles uh, or open our Bible apps over to Matthew chapter 18, we get the same story, well, almost the same story again. Uh, In Matthew chapter 18, verse 12, Jesus simply says this, what do you think if a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of that one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went away. So it is not the will of your father in heaven that one of these little ones should be lost. So so Jesus tells this parable. We know the parable. It has a slightly different ending than when we encountered it in Luke chapter 15, but it, it essentially appears to be the same parable. Uh, so Jesus, this gives all preachers a little bit of a, of a rest to say, oh, maybe this is Jesus showing me it's okay to reuse a sermon illustration at some Come point. <laughs> and, uh, and maybe I can, uh, you know, so, so go easy on your pastor when he preaches the same sermon twice <laughs> in a different context. That's probably the least and most tenuous connection of this parable to anything we've ever done before. <laughs> but for me, John, it's interesting. A couple of things I almost want to, to ask us about right to the start. One is that, that sense of Jesus reusing a, a piece of mm. story. Um, and because what's interesting, which we'll explore today, is that when he reuses the story, the context is very different in Matthew chapter 18 before we get to that story and after we get to that story. It's very different than what we saw in, in Luke 15. So it would be really easy to just take this parable and go, oh, I know this parable. This is the same one from Luke. But how is Jesus using it? Is, is he making the same point this time? And I think we'll discover he's saying something slightly different in there. Mm-hmm. Um and then the other thing is then uh, is to talk a little bit about the rabbi then and their method of communication that might might help us. Uh, so where do you want to kick us off, John? At the, at the start well, with I, those sort of thoughts. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're I think you're bang on the button in terms of that. Reading that parable, there's a beautiful familiarity about. Oh, I've heard this before. Uh, that sheep thing. Yeah, I've got this. And one of the dangers in is then we are automatically thinking we know what the conclusion is. Yeah. And again, for our listeners, if they've been hooking in with us, we've been appealing constantly for a couple of things. One big thing is never just pluck these parables out of their context. It's really important. Sometimes they do seem to stand alone. 
but often they are part of a trajectory of thinking. The the, the rabbi, as as a, as it were, is pulling threads together and taking his audience uh, on that journey. And and so when you uh, grab this parable that looks and sounds virtually the same as Luke 15, the danger is you go, oh, well, that's just that thing about lost people, right? Mm. And then we we miss how Jesus specifically uses that. So the context, again, is crucially important. And again, I think it does show that uh, Jesus is comfortable adapting his material to the context that he's speaking into. And we've seen this mm. so much. And, you know, um, a great example of this is what we might refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. My goodness, what a sermon. Um, and then the Sermon on the Plain, uh, which is you know, mm. Luke chapter 6. Yeah. So on the surface of it, there's lots of similarities. And, of course, sometimes what people have done, they've fallen into the trap of thinking it's the same sermon, and then they can't understand why there's huge differences in the sermon. Yeah, well Luke, similarities. Luke thought he was in the flats, and Matthew thought he was in a mountain. And, yeah, you know. exactly. And and also, like, uh, Jesus leans into, there's really strong rabbinic sense in Matthew, which you would expect, because Matthew is writing as a, a Jewish person to a Jewish audience. And he's absolutely working so hard to show the Jewishness of Jesus as the Messiah. So, you know, in, in that beautiful Sermon on the Mount, six times Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. I mean, this is this is sort of classic teacher language mm-hmm. in this world. He's saying there's a, there's a view on this text. There's an interpretation on this text. There's oral tradition around this text. Let me give you my view of this text, and and Which he, is he really common rabbinic way of doing things. Absolutely, totally. So the audience, the Jewish audience of Matthew five, six, and seven, would totally get that uh, idea. In in the, in the Lucan context, it's the similar material but presented in a very interesting way, and where Jesus is positioning the kingdom, perhaps in a way that allows a wider audience to engage with it, and also. Luke clearly grabs that, which uh, seems to be more accessible to a non-Jewish audience. It's easier to get into that uh, because of that. Mm-hmm. So the idea of Jesus using material uh, in different, same material in different places is an absolute, uh, it's not just unique to Jesus, it's totally normal. And you've got to think that if we, if he didn't do that, that does mean we've lost a lot of Jesus' speeches. Although I suppose John at the end of his gospel does imply that Jesus said a lot more. Mm-hmm. But, you know, with a more than likely three-year-long itinerant ministry of preaching, you got to believe he didn't do the lost sheep, the lost son, and then go, well, that's that one done. I'm never doing that again. Uh, so I, I think about in modern times, you know, how often do people go to hear a comedian, for example, you know, that they actually go to hear them because they know the type of stories this person's going to tell. And, and and you go and hear your favorite band actually play the song that you already know. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that people would even go to hear Jesus because they want to hear, they've heard rumors of his controversial stories. They've heard about his healing ministry. They, I, I think it's, it's not actually, when we give it the time and space, it's not a hugely controversial suggestion that Jesus 
tells these stories, preaches these sermons more than once. Uh, absolutely. I, I think culturally for the world of Jesus, this would have been totally uh, expected. I think we're, you know, if we were to modernize this to our world today, modern communicators, preachers, teachers, etc., are probably under more pressure because we're more exposed. So, you know, um, and therefore we, we feel like every time we go to a different church, we've got to come up with something absolutely different, unique and fresh, especially if you're like me in a more translocal context. But yet there have been moments where I have felt a strength around an idea the Lord wants to communicate to the church. And I'm going, well, this isn't just for one church. I think this is for uh, a range of churches. I think this is for a season of time. I think this fits with the context we're in, the urgency of the moment. And so I I wouldn't necessarily communicate uh, a sermon in exactly the same way in multiple contexts, because there's always nuance and change and contextual uh, relevance. But the fact is, there's something passionate on you that you feel is really important for a moment, a season, a time, or important to your fundamental ideas about God and the kingdom of God. And, and of course, Jesus has some very, very strong, profound, challenging, and controversial ideas. And You know, no good communicator expects his audience or her audience to get that first time. I mean, Mm. even Jewish culture and its education system is profoundly repetitive. Memorization, repeat, repeat, you know, liturgy, cyclical liturgy, the idea that you would go over and over the same ideas over and over again until they are ingrained into your personhood. Jesus is educated in that system. That's how Jesus memorized the text. That's how Jesus uh, learns these stories because they're repeated to him over and over and over again. Uh, And therefore, when when he develops his originality of material, he's using the same types of skills, I think, that uh, his culture would both appreciate and understand. Remembering there's no books to go to, there's no apps to download. What Jesus is dropping out to this crowd, they've got to remember. They've got to be able to remember this stuff. So if the stories are too complicated, too long, um, require, you know, brain power above people's pay grades, then he's going to miss the ability to communicate the kingdom. So he's got to make these things relatively accessible so that the average person can engage. But also, he, as we've looked at already, he has seeds, glorious hiddenness within his stories. That if you're prepared to find the treasure, then there's stuff to be there's stuff to be grabbed that doesn't seem apparent on the surface. And so you're actually representing Jesus to us then as an educator. So, so you said Jesus was educating these ways. But essentially what we're saying is Jesus was an educator. And, and that phrase might sound sim- strange to people because all of a sudden, you know, they're in their car and they've got Jesus as their high school history teacher flashbacks. And that might not be a pleasant um, analysis. But, but we see Jesus constantly referred to as rabbi which Mm. essentially in that context, one of the key roles of the rabbi was the education that was, that was teaching. It was, and we think, well, yeah, but they were just teaching scripture, but that was the education system of Israel at that particular point in history, wasn't it? So, so we're talking about Jesus, the rabbi as Jesus, the teacher as, as Jesus, the educator. So the, the idea that he's using his culture and context, educational philosophy, educational method is, is actually, 
is kind of neat from a point of view of even just thinking about Jesus as as man. I know the incarnation is probably too big of a subject for us to try and get into <laughs> in this podcast, but but although we believe that Jesus is God and also fully man, it, that kind of humanity of Jesus starts to come alive when we see him using his culture and context methods mm. and, and, and methodologies. So, so what we're seeing then, and I think this is important to note when you're engaging with Jesus, is, is what did, how did rabbis teach? Uh, and they didn't teach in exactly the same way as we would teach in the contemporary world, right? So we would... And although this is increasingly becoming challenged correctly, in my opinion, yeah, but true. classically in the Western context, we would see the expert comes in, they talk for a long period of time. At the end, once they have downloaded all of their brilliant knowledge to you, you may have moments for questions. Uh, but we've, uh, you and me have both been at lectures where the, the final line is, oh, well, look, I've talked too long and we're out of time, so no time for questions today. Mm. And, and we leave thinking, well, that was a good lecture. In Jesus' educational context, people have said, what was that? <laughs> he just talked endlessly for an hour and then went home. So it, it, you see, and if you look at the New Testament, you see this constantly. If you do reading uh, about the context outside of it, you'll find it even more enhanced. The rabbinic method was was quite eccentric almost, wasn't mm-hmm. it? To us, when we look back, you would you would pose questions to your students. You would take them on trips. You would point at stuff you saw and make an object lesson out of what you were seeing. You would ask them questions. And sometimes you would ask them questions, not for them to get the answer, but to see what questions they would then pose back to you. Like Jesus had this ability, and rabbis did this all the time, to say, what I'm really not interested in is whether you know the answer to me, but what are the connections that you make as a result of it? So your answer is irre- not irrelevant. Of course, you know the answer to this, but what are you going to ask back? Uh, so rabbis would would sometimes quote half a scripture verse. Uh, Jesus does it once. We know when he says he's discussing something and he says, the poor you will always have amongst you. Uh, and now some people have read that passage and, and realized, oh, well, Jesus is just basically saying, well, there's always going to be poor people. But Jesus is actually only quoting half of a verse from Torah, isn't he? True. And if you're a sharp student, you remember that the other half of the verse is to live with an open hand. Uh, and, and we as modern readers can come in tone deaf to this rabbinic method and, and come to the completely wrong conclusion as to what Jesus is actually saying, because we've assumed that he was just giving the lecture, not engaging his students in a sort of backwards and forwards. Uh, and I think in this passage here, what we're going to do then is try and string together all those things. The context, so so don't just take this one parable and say, oh, I know what this parable means, let me move on. But actually, it's strung together on a longer interaction of Jesus's. Jesus is a rabbi. So when we string this together, we're going to have to look out for little clips, tests, connections, thought processes mm. that will push us to think about why does Jesus tell the parable of the lost sheep here and how might we apply that? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so it's kind of exciting. And, I, and for me, John, whenever I've read about Jesus as a rabbi, it just makes me more and more excited to learn from him because oh. I realize he was willing to take on the, the controversial. He, he, he was willing to shock us sometimes to kind of almost wake us up out of our sleep. Like really good re- you know, rhetoric does that sometimes, doesn't it? You go, oh yeah. my goodness. And you remember the story because... Well, we have from Jesus' first sermon in Luke, you know, he just reads a bit of the Bible, makes a couple of commentary com- comments on it, and people try and throw him off a cliff. Indeed. So he had the ability to really get to the quick of the issue, didn't he? Yeah, totally. I, and I think one of the challenges that comes to me as a, as a learner 
as well as hopefully <laughs> some level of ability to be able to teach people is, um, you know, I, I want to try and not just hear the words of Jesus, but get into the world of Jesus. So you're trying to understand um, the, 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 maybe a cultural context or um, a nuance within the text, a tonation within the text that isn't always obvious, but maybe there are clues in the surrounding bits and and slowing Jesus down. I think we assume far too much about the words of Jesus. Uh, and, and because of that, I think we, uh, and I say we, you know, the church uh, itself has been guilty perhaps of misunderstanding or yes. misrepresenting, misinterpreting some of the words of Jesus and getting them really quite radically wrong. Um, and so slowing right down and recognizing if, if, if you're reading like the passage we are reading and something seems to jar, something seems to slip out of gear, what's going on there? Don't just read past it or don't just, don't just ignore it. Something's going on that's calling us into the text. And I think Matthew 18 is a classic example of, of a trajectory that Jesus seems to be creating. And then there's like a couple of jarring moments within that. You go, whoa, what's that about? And maybe something else is going on in that text, which um, is both quite amazing, but a little bit disturbing uh, and, and sort of rattles us a little bit. I love the idea of tune. So so let's jump into the text with that in mind. Mm. It's, it's lyrics and tune. Uh, there's a little story <laughs> about during the American Revolutionary War against the, the British, uh, a song was written. And if you read the lyrics of the song, it's, it's, a, it's just a classic sort of you know, revolutionary, you know, encourage the troops to to keep believing in what they were standing for. And it's not overly interesting. What's actually interesting about the song is that they set it to the tune of the British National Anthem, right? <laughs> so, so actually, if you don't hear the tune, you actually miss the power of what they were doing by choosing very much this song to say something else. And so I love that idea of, 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 of music and lyrics, that it's not just what Jesus physically says in this one verse, but what's the tune of Jesus' life? Of, of Jesus as a person. Uh, and so if Jesus is saying something that seems out of sync with him as a person, we need to do some exegesis, which would be the technical word, not just of the words, but of the context and the character of Jesus. Because maybe maybe he's pushing us a little bit on the text. Yeah, outstanding so, point, David. I, 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 think, I, I think that's worth emphasis. And, and I, I think the point you've made is absolutely profoundly important and outstanding that it it's not just reading the words it's reading the life of jesus if if jesus is on the surface of it saying something that seems to contradict the the posit of his life the the, the positioning of his worldview then then we're not hearing that properly or we're in danger of reading something in to the text instead of drawing something out of it and i i think if if our listeners can remember one thing one thing from this podcast <laughs> what you've just dropped out is gold and don't just read the words read the life it's like paul as well i think it's like all major contributors to the text um it's trying to understand something of of the the the, the motivation of the person as well as the actual words that appear on a letter or are recorded for us. And and if you get that, ooh, I think there's 
there's gold in them there are hills you know there's there's stuff that we can <laughs> we can find so great point david great point love it so there's a lost sheep and so let's hit rewind and we're mm-hmm. going to go right the way back up to the start of uh, chapter 18 and we're going to ask how do we get to a lost sheep and we get there because the disciples come to jesus and say who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven <laughs> To which everything we've just said, everything we've just said proves our point that you can even track around with Jesus and watch this incredible ministry of service, of care, of the last shall be first. You can listen to the whole Sermon on the Mount and you can sit one day and think to yourself, you know what? I'm going to ask Jesus. <laughs> I'm going to ask Jesus, which of us is the best? <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a staggering. And of course, it is. It does set the tone for everything we're about to get. So. So, so then Jesus, in response to that, um, he he, you know, brings this child into the midst of this thing, and and says to them, you know, unless you're prepared to change. So that I think that's the key there. Unless you're prepared to change, uh, turn about, t- t- turn around your ideas, and and as it were, become uh, like little children. You will never enter. And of course. He he's he's challenging this sort of drive for greatness and influence, and he's saying he's saying literally you you've got to you've got to flip that over. Um, he goes on to say in verse four, therefore whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest. So introducing the paradox of the kingdom, um, that in in the world in which they live, greatness is achieved by striving, by dominating by competition, by abusing, by manipulating, uh, by muscling. And, and it's interesting Jesus- to note as well in this, John, that Jesus lives in a world, uh, you know, the language would be, you know, academics would talk about it as the language of honor and shame. So Jesus mm. lived in what we'd call an honor culture. Many of those cultures still exist in the world today. Uh, the Western world seems to think we don't. Uh, but what's uh, just a really significant point as to how controversial this is, that in a culture that values honor, you never humble yourself. Indeed. So people are only humbled. Hum, hum, humbleness, <laughs> humility, that's the word. <laughs> humility, <laughs> humbleness. It's a good job we script this, right? Um, <laughs> humility is always enforced in an honor and shame culture. It is something that is put on you. And so there's, we sometimes in the modern context, and particularly in Christendom, we actually miss how Jesus just turns around and says voluntarily, become humble it's so upside down from what people are used to hearing it's 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 power yeah it really is powerful and it's shaped of course in philippians 2 we see jesus does it to himself but but if you're there as a first century listener he said what just now he said that i should humble myself i'm not going to be so instead of being put in my place i'm going to take a lower place you know jesus Mm. says it about what happens when you go to a meal don't sit at the top sit at the bottom voluntary humility is controversial in jesus's context and of, of course actually totally. maybe controversial in ours as well actually yeah, yeah i t- t- totally agree and and of course the fact that we've got a visual aid right in front of them so it's not yeah. just jesus sort of being um intellectual with them it's okay here's a child like this yeah. if you're not sure what i mean by humble it's like this mm-hmm. um and then of course he he, he drives that even harder uh, in verse five, he moves from sort of saying, take the attitude of the child in verse four to welcoming 
one such child in my name. If you do that, you sort of welcome me in, in verse five. Um, and then verse six, uh, he seems to ratchet the, the, the sort of um, <laughs> pressure on this whole thing. Yeah, pushes uh, he pushes it right up, doesn't he? It does. It really goes like off the Richter scale. So if anyone causes one of these little ones, uh, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom uh, they come. And there's really quite a dynamic uh, play on on the idea of stumbling here, uh, scandal on. Uh, you know, you've got it. Uh, whoever then shall cause one of these little ones to stumble would be a, a great tra- uh, translation. Uh, scandalize, actually, is, is literally yeah, well. the idea. And then as we move into verse 7, and some modern translations really sort of, I think, play this down a little bit. But in, in, in the context of uh, the original Greek, the idea then of, of stumbling is repeated three times. Woe to the the world because um, of the stumbling that they bring. Um, some translations have the causes of sin or cause to sin, but but the word there is scandalum. Um, and then later on, it goes on to say, uh, you know, these things in our world sort of come necessarily. These scandala, these stumblings come. But again, another repeat of the woe: woe to the man uh, by whom. The scandal on comes, so you get this. You get sort of this this gentle, gentle, gentle beginning. Who's the greatest? Well, actually, boys, you're thinking completely wrong. Humble yourself like a child, and you'll be the greatest in the kingdom. And then he goes. Oh, and by the way, uh, welcome uh, one like this into your midst. And when you do that, you welcome me. Oh, and by the way, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, um, it would be like really bad woe to you yeah. uh, millstone round your neck and th- i mean that image is quite is really quite drastic and quite it frightening really, really yeah. um from that context so so suddenly we've gone from humility to to this idea of make sure whatever you do you don't cause any of these little ones uh to stumble uh, and of course that's that's creating a trajectory for us. What do you think the connection here is? So, so generally speaking, when we read this passage, so we go, let's go back and um, we'll, we'll repeat this many, many times over this podcast context. So this passage often gets quoted again on its own as a standalone, mm. right? So, you know, if you put it something and when it's quoted on its own, it entirely relates towards children. Right, like physical children, mm-hmm. um, and of course, and I don't want actually at some level. I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that works at one level. That this is a text about don't cause stump, don't scandalize children, and and there's a lot can be said about that. But that link piece between verses four and five almost suggests a kind of metaphorical reading of children that's going on in this as well. So, so whoever becomes humble like this child. So, mm-hmm. so the child is now introduced as a model of the kingdom life. So whoever welcomes one, one such child, is Jesus, when he says one such child, saying a child, or is he saying a kingdom modeling person? Right? Yeah. So, 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 so if you listen to the, the flow of the parable, how do I become the greatest in the kingdom? I become like a child. 
And therefore, when I've become like a child, if anybody welcomes that attitude, that behavior, that life, that kingdom humility life, they're essentially welcoming Jesus. So Mm -hmm. if you push that metaphorical reading, Jesus then now is potentially talking to us about all Christian, the potentially all Christians who are trying to live out the kingdom. Be careful of doing something that scandalizes someone in their humility. Uh, I mean, do you, do you think there's a two-level way to read that? Because I feel quite comfortable with that reading of the first level of there's actually Jesus saying, you know, God cares about children. But a second yeah. level, he also cares about people who are in their humility living out the kingdom. Because almost there's a sense if you do try and live out this kingdom lifestyle of humility and Jesus following, you will be easy to abuse. You'll be easy to yeah. to take advantage of. Um the world will try and take advantage of that. So you get these woes towards the people who will miss what's going on here. Um, yeah. I, I mean, do you think I'm stretching it to find that second no, level? No, no, I, I certainly wouldn't um, push back on that at all. I, I, I know, you know, as we move into verse six, where he says, um, you know, whoever causes one of these little ones, you know, micron, uh, which, yeah. which, you know, doesn't just mean small, but, but could be in contrast to the idea of great, that's been introduced, uh, mm. big, influential, uh, obvious, um, standout. Uh, and of course, remember in the context... Well, and it's also, John, sorry, it's it's a whole... In, in the Greek, again, I realize it's always when we say, oh, it's in the Greek, but it's it's a Greek phrase, actually, mm-hmm. these little ones who believe. It, it's almost... Yeah. I think if, if you're writing this in English, you'd almost put quotation marks. It's almost like mm-hmm. a title, little ones yeah. who believe. So yeah. as in believers, small believers in yes. that sense. So I yes. feel like there's a spiritual dynamic going on here. I, I, I totally agree with that. And I think... There are Jesus uses this sort of language in other parts of the gospel, and it's clear he's not just referring to little ones in the sense of child little ones, but um, this idea of this juxtaposition of the kingdom of heaven. Um, and, and again, to, to remind our, our our readers, which which we're always trying to have, you know, for ourselves, it's remembering that Rome is dominating the world, and everything about Rome is great is big, is influential, it's strong, it's power, it's, uh, you know, stamping down on anything that looks small or weak. And again, it leans into our our previous conversation about the kingdom being small in its beginning, but it becomes influential. So again, I think the, the language of little ones who believe or or, or the idea of a child, I, I think it does have that double layer. David, I, I wouldn't have any uh, problem with that within that context. And so then you've got this warning because he then ratchets the warnings up a little bit more. So you get this, this repetition of this scandal language. So verse mm. six, don't put a scandal before mm. these these young believers. Let's even mm. phrase it that way. Actually, because yep. it'd be better off if you just dumped yourself in the sea if that happened. In fact, and woe to the world because it's always putting scandals out there. Um, and yep. the, the occasions for scandal for scandal are bound to come but woe to the one who it comes through. And then it, and then you get verse eight, the ratchet comes up even higher now. In fact, if your hand or foot causes you to cause, to, to scandal, <laughs> so I'm just trying to keep that Greek word connected, yeah, yeah. like you say, if your hand or foot causes you to scandal, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to have life maimed than two hands and feet and, uh, and be thrown into the eternal fire. 
Um, and if your eye causes you to scandal, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better to enter life with one eye than with two high eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. Like, ouch, like that got dark really quickly. Is the, is the child still standing in their midst as Jesus says this? Because he might have a few nightmares. And, uh... Uh, absolutely. And, and, but doesn't that really help with understanding that passage? How many times I've heard that passage, you know, if your eye offends you, gouge it out, if your hand of it cut it off, to be absolutely personalized. And it's almost been applied to me in terms of my sin, my yes. personal sin. You know, if I'm, for, forgive me listeners, but you know, if I'm looking at porn, pluck your eye out, better not, you know, better to be blind and sort of go to hell. Or, or if I'm doing something with my yeah. hands or my feet. But actually in this context, of course, the, the gouging out of the eye, the cutting off of the hand is not to do with my personal sins and stuff mm. I'm doing when nobody's looking. That's it's brilliant. to do with the way I am treating these little ones who believe. It's to do with community. And, and again, it's forcing the agenda away from the I again and back to the we, which is a, another constant theme of Jesus, of, of the celebration of the we within the context of the kingdom of God, the, the, the massive personalization that we have applied to the kingdom of God in a, in, a, in a Western culture would have been almost unrecognizable to a first century world. They, they wouldn't have interpreted the kingdom of God as being something for me. It would have been something for us. And my actions are understood within the usness of that kingdom the we of that kingdom. It's I is always moving to we in the context of the biblical passage. And if you read that trajectory of, of scandal, it, then, then it, it takes the emphasis away from John Andrews's personal sins when nobody's looking to John Andrews's treatment of these little ones who believe. And it's totally then a different type of challenge. By Jesus. If if this was a text, I would say if somebody highlight just what John said mm. just there, just little, put a little marker point on that, because remembering that's going to come really important as you continue to push your way the other side of the parable of the lost sheep. Because again, and let's just keep repeating the point, if Jesus was saying, and we're saying he's not saying this, but if he was saying, oh, by the way, if you do something wrong, chop that bit of your body off, right? Um, that would be completely out of line with his language of forgiveness. But but somehow that that's when we read the verse out of past out of context, that's kind of what we hear quite regularly, is this idea that it's well, this is just this is how bad it is if you sin. If you do something wrong, you know, you you use an example of porn or you know, lying or 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 whatever it is. It's yep. almost like, well, that needs to be dealt with. And, and we forget about Jesus's language of forgiveness and read the passage all sort of clunkily. But mm-hmm. if we follow that stream of this is about scandal causing, this is about what do you do with people who are perhaps young in faith or people who are, who are mikra is the Greek word, who are little mm-hmm. in the world's eyes because yeah. they're humble. You know, bear in mind, we've got Jesus hanging on a cross soon, mm-hmm. looking decidedly like Little in contrast Absolutely. with the Roman Empire, big Roman Empire crucifies little Jesus. Who's who's the winner? Who's the loser? Um, you know, and then I love that line in First Corinthians one where Paul just said, "But the empire didn't know what it was doing." But but that's there's that sense of last first, you know, uh, greatest smallest. These ideas are all churning around Jesus just here. Totally. So now you get this. For me, it's a big warning sign. Hey, this is how the kingdom works. It's it's least, you know, it's last, it's smallest. So be very careful 
that you don't try and break that. So, so, so there's a little bit of a, of a, you know, when you hear yourself as a Christian begin to talk in the language of biggest, best, mm. and mm. strongest, mm. there should be a lights, warning lights all over your dashboard that, whoa, you've taken a wrong turn somewhere because, because that's not how Christians talk. Absolutely. And isn't it powerful, David, that, that we've picked up themes and threads already in the parables that Jesus is weaving into different ideas, different moments and different imagery. So so we, we pick up here in this what seems like an innocuous beginning, who's the greatest, and then Jesus weaves into the answer all the themes we've already picked up on yeah. in some of the parables, what the kingdom's Stunning. like. The contrast to great and small or influential and, you know, inconspicuous, that it's all coming in here again. And remember, if you're one of these young disciples, you're you're picking those repeat ideas. He's, he's on about this again. He's talking about. <laughs> but of course, now the application is coming to these disciples really dynamically to them as a group. It's not just, oh, here's what the kingdom's like. It's like a little seed in the ground. Now Jesus is absolutely applied. Here's what the kingdom looks like right now to you as a group. Here's how we have to respond to what's going on. So when you see a big, massive building, as opposed to, our, or actually let's use another Jesus example. When you see a big, massive mountain, right? Or you see huge, massive stones in the temple and you could be mistaken to go, oh, wow, look at that kingdom. And Jesus says, that's not kingdom at all. Mm -hmm. When you start to hear that sort of language, the warning signs are, are out there. Sure. A theologian that I enjoy engaging with from time to time uh, in the, is the American theologian Stanley Harawas. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's this somehow, I'm not sure how, but uh, a few, quite a few years ago now, Time magazine went to see Stanley Harawas because they had decided, for reasons unbeknown to me, they had decided to award him the category of America's best theologian. Right. Now, just remember all the things we've just talked about. So they came to his office and they said to him, so so, how do you respond to the idea that that you are America's best theologian? And Harvard, to his just brilliance, says to them, best is not a theological category. Boom. Come on. Come on. <laughs> Which, And I think he's echoing this sort of stuff here. That, totally. that That's not what Jesus has called us to. He's called us to least. And uh, so I, I often I think about that. Best is not a theological category. That's because so if good. you go pursuing best, mm. you might trample the little ones. Uh, you know, when you when you decide you're going to build the big building, you might build it on a field of seeds. Uh, mm -hmm. It's. Uh, which is then is verse 10 now of mm. chapter 18. We're just working our way through this beautifully. What leads Jesus into the shepherd and the sheep? Take care that you do not despise one of these little ones. Beautiful. For I tell you, in heaven, their angels continually see the face of my father in heaven. Like, whew. It's gorgeous. You know, the, the way to God is the least. The way to God is the humble. The, the way to the kingdom is 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 small and that is jesus his link phrase in there okay i feel like i'm imagining i'm trying to put myself john into jesus the teacher here okay uh, that's pretty heavy uh i think we need a story uh okay so um, um let me uh let me just throw in a story here a shepherd has a hundred sheep i don't because i don't think you're getting this i don't think you're believing me so a shepherd has a hundred sheep and he leaves one he's got 99 he's lost one that seems okay. 99 biggest, one least. What does the shepherd do? He mm. goes after the least, mm. which is brilliant because, I mean, it bears repeating. No, he doesn't. 
in it. real cultural life, the shepherd never does this. But this is a kingdom shepherd. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and I, I love David the link. There's a beautiful uh, statement, you know, as as Jesus um, is is leading up to this 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 lovely idea where. Uh, right at the end, uh, verse 14, he says, um, in the same way, uh, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these should perish. And I love the way that links to sort of the idea of uh, Jesus searching for the lostness of those. The son of man has come to seek and see of that which was lost. And he's not willing for any of them to be destroyed and I love that. Uh, uh, and and again, that's that's. I I think it's a, it's just a sense of the heart of God, the sense of the kingdom yeah, of beautiful. God, and it's within this particular context of greatness and smallness that don't despise the small things to the extent that you allow them to be destroyed, because the Father will pursue the small thing in order to not allow it to be destroyed. Uh, and it's just cut your losses. It's one out of a hundred. Move on. Most most shepherds would settle for you know a one percent loss in a year. And and the father says, no, no, no. I I don't want to settle for that percentage loss. I'm going to pursue so that none is destroyed. Just, so and that's that is the Greek word, isn't it? Apollos. Yeah. Yeah. Verse fourteen. The Greek word the, uh, Apollos is 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 there, isn't it? It's uh, yep. in order that none. Would be, be destroyed. Destroyed, you know. Mm. So he, he just cranks it up, and I think our English translators um, always uh, use the word "lost" for the nice English balance of it being yeah. the, the lost sheep. But but of course, the destroyed really plays back to scandal on, doesn't it? it Absolutely. Yeah. If you're looking at if you're looking at the aggressiveness of the language around yeah. this, that that Jesus is saying, you know, woe to the person who scandalizes and 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 rather pluck your eye out than allow it to scandalize you. Cut your hand off and allow it, and allow it to lead others to, to stumbling. Uh, and then almost in opposition to that, uh, the father won't let anything be destroyed by that mm-hmm. scandalizing. And if you, you connect all those words together, I think you've got something really, mm-hmm. really powerful. And, and it's always worth pointing out the economy of God in this. What happens when you're willing to let the one go? Well, then you might let two go, and then you might let three go. And eventually what might happen is you end up in a situation where you've let 99 go. And then what you do as the one who's left behind, you say, yeah, but I'm the right one. And look what I'm doing because I'm doing the best. And I'm and, and we've seen this in church life across the, the years that we even start to defend it theologically. And I, and I don't want to take the podcast into, into controversial grounds at this stage, but it's just worth noting that you do see an insight into the heart of God as to what God wants for the world here. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want any lost. Mm-hmm. So if your theological position is that God's okay with lost things, then you need to read the parables again because God is not okay. And I hear sometimes theological positions that say, oh no, God just, God just wants to choose a few. God's only interested in having a few. And, and this parable becomes very difficult to read because it seems that God, not only is he wanting everyone, he, he's encouraging, Jesus is railing against those who might accept smaller numbers, who might accept less than, than, than everybody being found. It's, it's quite, it's, it's shockingly controversial, actually. At some it, it is. And, and doesn't it play also, David, to something we've touched on before? It plays to the image of God. So yeah. 
So, you know, the image of God is in these little ones. The image of yes. God is in the least. So yes. if the image of God is invested in the henny human, whether they be little, uh, literally in terms of age or, or you know, size, or, or they are little in terms of social strata and influence, that is irrelevant to us because we are invested into uh, seeking to redeem the the image of God in lost humans, in broken humans. And therefore, we have no right to categorize people at any level, at any level that says, well, that's great, that's small, uh, because uh, the Bible worldview constantly challenges our understanding of what is great and what is small and the value system that is placed onto that. You know, my 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 mother recently uh, passed away and uh towards the end of her time on planet earth you know she became weak now she was a strong independent amazingly generous woman worked hard all of her life but of course she she gets she gets ill family gathering around her helping supporting her and suddenly all the things she can't normally do david you know she can't she, she's, she's normally strong. She's normally there. She's normally searched. She can't normally do. She can't do all of that stuff now. Is she now, because of her smallness, is she now less valuable? Right? Is she mm. less valuable as my mother because she can't get up? Is she less valuable as my mother because you know, she can't take me out for dinner? Is she less valuable because her mind isn't as sharp as maybe it was and her strength isn't as great? No, we we fundamentally believe that that her value is intrinsic mm-hmm. with her connection with the image of God and therefore little or great in the eyes of society is of no consequence to us. And when we find ourselves driven by a worldview that starts to label people in categories of great and little, mm-hmm. economically, politically, culturally, gender, color, whatever We're label we put, oh, we We're are we are in so much trouble. That it's not it's not funny. And I think that's why Jesus' language here is so so controversially strong. I mean, it's yeah. it's off the scale strong. And he's not speaking to a bunch of unbelievers. He's speaking to his core group. He's speaking to his to his gathered audience, and he's saying to them, Listen, you do not get involved in this. Do not allow yourself to be one who propagates the great over little idea, mm. or you will end up missing the kingdom of God. And you'll end up getting on the wrong side of God on this argument. And, and it's interesting that we often focus, when I've heard this passage engaged with in church context, we focus on the gouging out of the eye and the, the cutting off of hands. And of course, Jesus isn't encouraging self-harm here. But what we miss in that side is that Jesus is throwing down the gauntlet is that that actually if you do become one who scandalizes the small who you know who who forgets the kingdom way you are eradicating yourself from the kingdom you're you're putting yourself out which isn't it fascinating that that so often within the kind of western church rhetoric we talk to people outside the kingdom about what happens if you don't come into the kingdom? What's fascinating when you actually read Jesus, he talks to people on the inside about how they might get thrown, how they might throw themselves out, actually. Because it's not that it's not that God's throwing them out. So you are excluding yourself. Mm-hmm. If if you want to run down this line of 
of no big is better than small, you've excluded yourself from this journey. Wow. Shocking. It is shocking. Totally shocking. It is. Wow. Powerful stuff. Okay, that's it for episode nine. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get in touch with either of us about something we said, you can reach out to us on podcast at twotexts.com or by liking and following the Two Texts podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you did enjoy the episode, we'd love it if you left a review or comment where you're listening from. And if you really enjoyed this episode, why not share it with a friend? And don't forget you can listen to all our podcasts at twotext.com or wherever you get your podcasts. But that's it for this episode. We'll be back tomorrow. But until then, goodbye. Goodbye.